Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. We're closing out the year with a look back at some of the top stories around the national park system and involving the National Park Service. We opened this look back a week ago with Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, discussing issues involving the National Park Service and outside impacts affecting the national park system. Today, in the second half of this discussion, we're focusing on natural resource issues in the parks. We'll be back in a minute with Kristen and Mike. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. Federally insured by NCUA. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. Visit explorermaps.com to find your next adventure. Okay, this is Kurt Repenshack, the host at National Parks Traveler. We're back today with uh, Kristen Bringle, Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. If you listened to last week's show, we were talking about uh, some of the top stories across the National Parks Service, National Parks System in 2023. And last week, we kind of focused on agency issues and, and some of the outside impacts that are impacting units of the National Park System. We're going to focus this um, week's show on natural resource issues um, because that's one of the main reasons we go to the National Parks to enjoy the outdoors, to see the wildlife, the vegetation, to learn from the cultural and the historic sites um, about our nation's history and who we are as a people. So let's just jump right in and, and climate change probably has to be um, one of the top issues there because you know across the park system we've got sea level rise, wildfires, uh, loss of permafrost up in Alaska, and what's that doing to the park resources? Um, that's one of the major reasons they're rebuilding part of the Denali Park Road. The permafrost uh, kind of gave way and collapsed a section of the road. Storm runoff has been an issue in a number of parks. I know um, two weeks ago with the heavy rains in the East Coast, I'm, I'm sure there's some issues there. Uh, the Appalachian Trail, um, possibly um, Acadia National Park, which in the past has realized they've got to install bigger culverts to handle the greater amounts of uh, stormwater runoff. We just had a story in The Traveler about coral bleaching um, in the Virgin Islands and how it's um, really an ecological disaster. So let me stop talking. And, and you guys, um, what's your perspective on some of these issues, the impact to the parks? I think um, when uh, the Park Service did a study on sea level rise, the number one park unit that would have been affected first by sea level rise was the Washington DC sites. And the Washington Post actually just did a, a story on this about the tidal basin. And what's really interesting is this sort of river and stream system that run under Washington DC and essentially flood it continuously. But the effects on the parks here in Washington DC are how long can you sort of hold back sea level rise? And we are going to use Great American Outdoors Act money to uh, try to rebuild some of those walls in the tidal basin. And I was just there over Thanksgiving. I mean, it's pretty incredible, the deterioration. But the Park Service is obligating the money 
that we worked hard um, and lobbied hard to get them in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so they're able to work on certain restoration and resilience projects right now. And we'll start to see uh, those projects begin in, in many parks, hundreds of projects to address some of these climate change impacts. But it's tough when you think about the park system and you think about all the historic resources and how difficult it can be to move them. And I sort of wonder if, how strong of an opinion Mike has about Cape Hatteras and the constant movement of the lighthouse uh, there. But um, these are issues that the Park Service is just fully confronted with right now, whether it's preserving historic resources or even moving them sometimes. Um, and then all of the ecosystem changes that are afoot because of climate change and the fact that many species are going to look for cooler places and how are we going to accommodate for that going into the future and are there opportunities to expand certain park units to to give the wildlife a shot at survival um i think one of the more depressing stories is is what you just referenced kurt the bleaching of the coral reefs and there are going to be so many sacrifices due to climate change where the Park Service can't do anything to stop it. And this is going to be an interesting question as the Park Service moves forward on management for climate change and to figure out where can we actually intervene and help the situation and where is it too far along and it's just going to have to play out. I think one place that has been interesting, and I don't know if you've been following this either of you, but um, uh, at Sequoia, at post wildfire, the Park Service is replanting sequoia trees. And there's a big debate over whether you can do it in wilderness in a lawsuit. You actually can plant exactly. trees. You can plant trees in wilderness. The Wilderness Act doesn't prevent you from doing that. Um, but how long are you going to stave off um, these extreme wildfires? that shouldn't harm sequoia trees, but are because they're so hot and uh, problematic. And so these are tough choices the Park Service is gonna have to make. And um, and I hope we can have a really good conversation publicly about the places that are too far along and the places that we still can protect. Um, but it's it's a tough call on the ground. Mike, I know your last posting was at uh, Cape Hatteras. Um, right. The Park Service recently was able to buy two houses, I believe, that were uh, on the brink of collapsing into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I'm just kind of curious, are they going to move them out of the way soon? Or? Um, I think the purpose of buying them was to remove them. Um, I, and I think they were, at least one of them was uninhabitable that had been condemned because of loss of the septic system. So I think it was just a, maybe the most likely solution to solve the problem with those two houses that were now in the surf zone. Uh, interesting about the boundary at Hatteras is it changes with the tide or as sea level rises. If I remember correctly, the park boundary is the high tide line. Right. So if you get in the water, you're not in the park, but the beach, high tide line above it. So as erosion occurs, the high tide line changes, it moves inward or westward. I had a lot to be thankful for when I worked at Hatteras, but the thing I was most thankful for is that some previous superintendent had moved the lighthouse. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was the right solution. I read all the reports about it. It wasn't so much that erosion was simply gonna overtake the lighthouse. It's that the original lighthouse was built on a timber Lincoln log style foundation buried under the beach in fresh water. And so as sea level rise was occurring, salt water was intruding into the wooden foundation that had been there for what are plus years and starting to make it erode. So not loss of sand, but the weakening of the foundation was going to make the lighthouse topple over at some point. When I was there, we moved an old Coast Guard station. That was a historic structure. It was on the 
beach side of the highway. We moved it now a quarter mile up the road and on the other side of the highway. So hopefully it'll last another 40, 50 years before it's somebody else's problem to deal with if sea level rise continues. Um, just looking at the big picture, the Park Service just recently updated uh, and released uh, the 2023 uh, climate change response strategy. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an update of previous ones, but I think there's some key points in it. Um, it identifies core concepts, so which are understand <laughs> what's happening, adapt to it, come up with strategies to respond to whatever's happening, uh, mitigate impacts if you can, and then communicate. So public education so that there's understanding of what's impacts climate change is causing. So that sounds pretty simplistic. Understand really means have enough research going on so that you can document the changes. So coral bleaching is a high profile thing and it's people like to scuba dive and, and whatnot. So it's pretty well studied. Um, it's well known that um, permafrost in Alaska is melting and it causes all kinds of impacts to the environment, to ecosystem and wildlife and hydrology and those kinds of things in Alaska. Uh, I worked at Yosemite and Sequoia Kings. Uh, the giant sequoias are a personal <laughs> favorite resource of mine. Uh, if you think about it, they've evolved over thousands and thousands of years and only can survive at this very narrow elevation range on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada, where there's enough snow and enough moisture, and they're often growing in these ravines, like little valleys on the side of the mountain slope where there's more moisture. And so climate change is causing drought, more severe wildfires, but it's also stressing the trees more and the trees are adapted to fire. You know, 2,500 year old sequoia tree, the bark may be a foot thick at its base and it's resistant to burning. Uh, the sequoia cones, which are the iconic cones that appear on the headband and the belt, of the National Park Service uniform. Uh, they're very small for such a large tree. They only release their seeds, they're very dense. And the only time they release their seeds is if they've been heated up. So there has to be fire for sequoias to regenerate. But the recent fires a couple of years ago, um, severely damaged or killed up to 25% of the population. Sequoias don't travel very fast. They don't evolve very fast they're stuck where they are. So if climate change continues these effects, they're a doomed species. And yet two of the first five national parks in the country were created in part around sequoia groves because they're such an incredible resource. Yeah, so it, it's worrisome to me. Um, I think the Park Service plan, and I you know, gave a simplistic overview of it, is good. It's got proven stuff in there, but the question is, did they have enough funding and staffing to implement it? I mean, yeah. it'd be documenting effects all over the place, including in American Samoa and places like that where sea level rise is really threatening to overtake some of the island and the Everglades and coral bleaching and the Caribbean, permafrost melting in Alaska, you name it. So part of developing good practical strategies to improve resilience is to understand what's happening. And they have some really good people working on it. Uh, Patrick Gonzalez, the chief climate scientist for the Park Service is internationally recognized as an expert in his field. Uh, but do they have enough staff to conduct enough research in order to develop good strategies at all the places being affected? That's that's my question, I guess. Our hope with the $500 million that we got in the Inflation Reduction Act for personnel for the Park Service. Our hope was, and what we've advocated for, I think, with you, Mike, is to use that money for expertise, because I think there might have been a desire to use it for seasonal staff. And we went to DOI and the Park Service and said, please, please, please use this money to um, bring some experts on to help <clears throat> think about that forecasting that you're talking about. You know, another thing with climate change, and it's not exactly a natural resource issue, but 
parks in the southwest are getting hotter. Um, health of park visitors is a growing concern, and we've seen a number of visitors to Grand Canyon and uh, Big Bend um, unfortunately pass away because of heat issues that they didn't pay close enough attention to. Um, getting back more focused on natural resources, um, are horses good or bad? I know at uh, Cumberland Island, they're good. At Theodore Roosevelt, they're not so good. Um, and there are other parks that have horses with them. The The issue at Cumberland Island is, is really kind of interesting, and I'm sure Theodore Roosevelt will catch up with them. But at Cumberland Island, there's groups that are saying that the horses are not being managed properly, that um, their health is at risk, and um, they're impacting um, natural resources, including some, some uh, threatened and endangered species on the national seashore. And um, there's court action going through. And the other day, um, the Interior Department actually requested that the lawsuit be tossed out because the authorities, i.e. the Park Service, has no legal re- authority requiring them to remove the horses or any final agency action that can be taken in regard to the animals. Good or bad horses? Cumberland Island, what do you guys think about that? Um, having managed Cape Hatteras, which has its own wild ponies, they call them. Uh, the second thing I was most thankful for at Hatteras was that the wild ponies wasn't a big issue there. The origin of wild horses on the Outer Banks, some of it's attributable to specific shipwrecks. So in some ways they're viewed as a cultural artifact at least. Um, You know, they, people love to see them. It sort of helps illustrate the story of the graveyard of the Atlantic because it, you know, here's a living descendant of something that came off a shipwreck 150 years ago. Um, they're problematic. At Hatteras, they were kept in a fenced pasture and needed supplemental feed. Made it really easy for visitors to see them. It limited the impacts. It's a little hard to call them wild ponies when they're in a fenced pasture. But of all the alternatives that worked there, I think it's kind of situational. So to me, it's a very tough issue. There's no single solution that would work everywhere. Um, I think wild horses are non-native species, and if they're adversely affecting vegetation, water quality, native species, then it's appropriate for the Park Service to take management action. Kristen, where does NPCA stand on Cumberland Island's horses? I don't think we've taken a position on Cumberland Island horses, um, but I agree with Mike that these issues, horses and otherwise, um, in various park units have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis and see what's going on. Just quickly bringing it up, I mean, there's all sorts of issues with their health and survival, and all of that has to be taken into consideration. I've been to Cumberland Island. I've seen the horses. You know, they're lovely, but Sometimes these animals have huge issues and um, can be very difficult to manage for the park service. So um, yeah, I don't know I mean, enough about Cumberland Island to know, you know, what's going on with this population. I mean, other issues that come into play is genetic diversity. If it's an yeah. isolated population, it essentially becomes inbred over time and then they have health issues related to that. So, I mean, it's it's not a low maintenance management issue that requires a fair amount of ongoing attention in order to manage effectively. And again, I think every situation has a different history, different origin of how the horses got there in the first place. And And there's nowhere for these horses to go at Cumberland. It's a ferry ride to get to Cumberland Island. So they're landlocked. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting. um, Or, as a bystander, waterlocked. It's interesting as a bystander because it seems like at Cumberland Island, public sentiment is, yeah, the poor horses are suffering. We've got to remove them from the island so they can lead healthier, longer lives. At Theodore Roosevelt, where the Park Service has questioned 
whether the the feral horses there should remain and whether the longhorn cattle are there should remain um the public once seems to there there's an outspoken public group that wants the horses to remain there and again you know um park service staff is put in an untenable position because uh how, how do you fight? You know, we, we love to see our, our horses run wild out there. And Teddy Roosevelt brought horses and rode horses out here, and that's part of the integral part of the park. That's the nature of controversial issues. There are different points of view, and there's often passionate thinking on both sides. Um, I'm a pragmatist. At least I felt like I was as a superintendent. I tend to want to look, is there a practical compromise that would better protect park resources, but still allow some sort of remnant demonstration population? So for example, a portion of the park is, I forget the name of it, a ranch. Would it be historically correct to have a limited number of horses and cattle confined to the ranch? So people could see them, you know, the historic representation of those being in the area, they're no longer free ranging, which maybe they were when Teddy was there. I don't know. But in the big scheme of things, I still feel like the organic act has to prevail. So if an impact introduced by people, by humans, and free roaming cattle and Horses ultimately were somehow introduced by humans, even if it predated the park. If those are causing adverse impacts to natural resources and or cultural resources, then I think the Park Service is obligated to take some sort of action. And you can debate the details of the action, I think. But uh, our group at Theodore Roosevelt, we supported the gradual reduction to elimination of the non-native cattle and this is Kurt Rappencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today about natural resource issues across the park system during the past year, 2023. We're joined by Christian Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Parks, cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So Christian, um, another large natural resource issue, I think, is what's going on at Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. And, you know, of course, um, we had your colleague, Melissa Abdo, um, Suncoast Regional Director for MPCA, on a, a show recently talking about the MPCA's report looking at the oil exploration that occurred back in 2017 and 2018, and whether or not the company had lived up to Park Service requirements to not just mitigate the impacts, but but restore the landscape. 
Why are we still talking about this? We're still talking about it because there's still legal right to drill for oil in Big Cyprus because the subsurface rights are owned by an, an entity, a company. And, you know, this is one of those really difficult issues where the surface of Big Cyprus is protected as a preserve. And, you know, one could argue it's just, you know, a spectacular national park unit that has some really, um, some species that are very, uh, that are fighting for survival, whether it's panthers or orchids. And so you have this incredible ecological landscape that on, on its surface uh, is meant to be protected, but these subsurface rights still exist for oil and gas exploration. And um, a few years back, Burnett Oil Company did seismic testing because they were allowed to do it. And uh, they caused a lot of damage. They actually took a video of yeah. their of what they did. And you could see on the videos that they're uh, knocking over trees and killing trees that they shouldn't be. It's amazing. Amazing. That video is, is on National Parks Traveler. People want to search for it. But what I don't understand, Kristen, what I don't understand, two things. One, as I understand the enabling legislation, um, and you or Mike can correct me, the Interior Secretary can prohibit it, even though even though the mineral rights are privately owned. And the second question is, why hasn't the landscape been restored as the Park Service required? I mean, the federal government and the state of Florida are spending billions of dollars to restore the river of grass, the flow of the river of grass from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay through Big Cypress and through Everglades National Park. And yet we've got these impacts in Big Cypress, which, you know, Melissa Abdo tells me and, and others say are interfering with that flow of water. Yeah, I, I mean, it's very disturbing that legally the Interior Department, I believe under Obama, um, allowed the seismic testing to move forward. And I think not adhering to the strength of the Park Service laws and policies and saying this is going to cause too much damage. This is an area where we need to protect all of these species. We need to protect water flow. We're spending tens of millions of dollars to restore water flow. And then we're going to let you come in with these massive trucks and do all of this damage and, and cause damage to that exact water flow. This was such a bad call at the time to allow the seismic testing to happen. We lost in court, though, and they proceeded with doing the seismic testing. And now the Park Service isn't holding them accountable to the restoration activities that the company should pay for, that the company should undertake because they did so much damage. And so we're trying to get the Park Service to move in the right direction on this and actually have a stronger restoration plan and operation down there. But this is the whole thing with, with whether it's the Park Service or other land management agencies, you have to hold these companies accountable. You absolutely do. And they should be doing proper restoration of this area. And when we don't hold the companies accountable to doing that, it, it sends the wrong message more broadly. And so there are many, many national parks that still have uh, subsurface rights that folks can drill for oil. We have to be consistent here. And I think the management policies even say that there has to be consistency with management of these issues. And if you're going to allow a company to impair park resources and violate the Organic Act, they should be in very big trouble. And it's very concerning that the Park Service isn't forcing more action on their part right now. But agree, Kurt, that these parks that have endangered species and real ecological damage that has been done over time that's under repair right now. We have to protect these places and we have to hold everyone accountable to following the laws and policies. And it's just such a huge disappointment. It's tragic at Big Cypress. There have even been votes in Congress to prevent the oil drilling from moving forward with Republican and Democratic support. There's even a provision in the Interior Bill on Big Cypress drilling 
this is a bipartisan issue of concern. And ultimately, what the Park Service should be doing is buying out the company once and for all and ensuring that the subsurface and the surface of Big Cypress are well protected. And so now that we've passed the Great American Outdoors Act and Land and Water Conservation Fund is robustly getting funding right now, this is a perfect time to start um, figuring out how to remove that threat from, from this park unit. Mike, do you think it? Do you think the mineral rights should be bought out, or do you think the Interior Secretary should put her foot down? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. If we could step back for a second, many of the park units created in the '70s, early '80s, had what I call compromises. So there's a number of park units that were established that the Park Service, at the time, for whatever reason, uh, did not buy the mineral rights, and so private owners still own the right to drill for oil and gas. And it generally, under the enabling legislation, it was allowed to continue. With provisions, you know, Park Service can oversee it, et cetera. There's actually, the Park Service has its own set of regulations applicable to oil and gas operations. It's 36 CFR section 9B, or the 9B regs, they call them. Um, so the challenge is the system, Congress, um, history, has allowed private individuals or corporations to own these rights to drill for oil and gas on that land. And so it's a tough call to say you can't do it. It's a right. It's not a privilege. It's a right. I think the solution in some cases, particularly Big Cypress, would be for the government or a collaboration of government. And if there are any <laughs> fundraising nonprofits that buy land, to buy out the rights, but it, it's been a year since I've seen the last estimate. It's astronomical what it would cost to buy out the rights to an estimated amount of oil and gas production in an area. So um, even though it seems like the simple solution is to buy out the rights, it's expensive and complicated to negotiate. I hope the Park Service is moving in that direction because it's going to be a constant controversy. If you have, if you own oil and gas rights for some place, you don't just sit on them. You're not getting any value out of it. So there's always going to be the temptation for the the owners of those rights to want to develop them. You know, I think um, back during uh, the administration of President George W. Bush, um, there was a concerted effort to come up with a figure to buy out the mineral rights, and I. I I think it was less than $200 million, but there was a, a hitch at the last moment. Somebody really questioned whether it was an accurate estimate of the value. And so um, it fell apart. And um, we're living yeah, with the consequences. If I remember correctly, there was an inspector general investigation. Uh, basically, there was, uh, I guess, a standard real estate appraisal of the value of the rights, the owner wasn't going to sell it for that. I think leadership decided to negotiate and come up with a price that the owners would accept, which was a bit more, I don't remember the numbers, but was more than the appraised value. And so they weren't, that's where they got into difficulty is they're not supposed to pay more than the appraised value. Right, right. You know, another issue, um, migratory corridors. Um, back in March of this year, federal agencies were given six months to outline how they could develop or restore or protect ecological corridors, including those relied upon by wildlife during their migrations. So if you go six months from March, that would have been September. Uh, have you guys seen anything? I haven't seen any, any reports from federal agencies pertaining to that directive. Um, I asked around about it to people that um, know people, people that know people that are involved in it, and it's it's unclear what the Park Service has done yet to address it. Uh, just in reviewing some project proposals, some conservation area proposals, I mean, it's certainly being talked about on an interagency basis, I think maintaining connectivity or migration corridors between protected areas 
So maybe you have Yosemite here and then you have Sequoia Kings Canyon down there with a lot of national forest, multiple use, logging, uh, you name it, happening in between. There's going to be a question is the migration corridor between the two parks, which are very well protected. The parks are well protected, but is the corridor protected enough to allow species to migrate? So there is discussion of that, and certainly in some of the national monuments that are being created, they seem to give consideration to maintaining connection between different ecological areas so that species can migrate between the areas. But back to my original statement, it's unclear to me what the Park Service has done about it yet. Yeah, I know um, uh, roughly a year ago or maybe two years ago, um, the traveler reported on a, a proposal that um, the uh, the National Forest between Kings Canyon and Yosemite be turned over to the Park Service, um, in part because it would preserve or better protect that migratory corridor. Um, but I haven't heard anything about that proposal moving forward. Kristen, what's your uh, take on that? on the whole migratory corridors and reports. Yeah, I have not heard about the Park Service's initiative on this, but there's that one small paragraph in the management policies that says that the Park Service should work with other agencies on, you know, issues outside of their jurisdiction. And I think if I could wave a magic wand, I would revise that section of the management policies and really encourage a deeper commitment to um, this type of connectivity and make it a practice at the Park Service to work with the other agencies on connectivity and corridors. I think it would really be sad if we had to have Congress pass a bill on connectivity and corridors. I know that's been discussed quite a bit about having Congress step in and sort of require it. This should just be something the agencies are naturally doing right now. And um, I think my biggest fear is the, the potential lack of coordination, you know, in, in looking at these connectivity issues. I think the public really, really supports this idea of connectivity. And what's interesting is uh, during the Trump administration, they did do one sort of executive order on big game, but we need something more holistic that brings in all of the species. And I think that's what we're most interested in. But, um, you know, in talking about all of this coordination, I think the Obama administration had these meetings and these um efforts to bring the agencies together to coordinate on a variety of issues, including wildlife management. Um, It's got to be more than that. It's got to be embedded in what the agencies do on a day-to-day basis, planning, you know, management of projects, programming. It, It just has to be embedded you know, in all the fundamental things that the Park Service is doing management wise. And I just worry about these plans, these idea documents, when they're not embedded in the management policies, when they're not, when it's not conveyed as a day-to-day management issue, I start to worry a little bit because, you know, having a lot of lofty plans, I mean, Mike has done a great job. He did his homework before today, and he's been talking about a lot of different plans that the Park Service has had, um, but not so much implementation. And so I think we have to start thinking about that implementation side. And that, that's what I'm worried about the most, honestly. Another report, that's great, but how are they actually going to fundamentally engage? And, and I think some superintendents are really proactive about engaging their uh, sister agencies like the Forest Service and, and BLM and others don't at all. And I think that's another sort of culture issue that needs to be overcome. And I, you know, it's almost like you need to make it part of like the park service training of mm-hmm. this is something proactive that you should be doing and we encourage it and please engage with your sister agencies. So that's my two cents on all of that. But I think the good thing is, is that folks like Patrick Gonzalez that, that Mike was talking about earlier, I think there's more encouragement to do more forecasting and studying of ecosystems and I hope that really helps people be good implementers. 
Mike, you want to add something? Uh, if I could, I, I agree with Kristen that collaboration is probably the key here. I, at least my experience working in parks is national parks tend to be the highest level of protection for wildlife habitat. And so connectivity in a place like a Yellowstone, Tetons, Yosemite, where, wherever, um, tends to be more focused on the non-park service jurisdiction. So working with the neighboring agencies like BLM so that they're encouraged to better protect the migration route or the forest service. I know discussion of multi-agency migration routes comes up occasionally on some issues. There's a, a famous uh, area in Wyoming called the Path of the Pronghorn. Connects the Pronghorn Antelope Submarine Range in Jackson Hole with their winter habitat to the south. But the connection is not necessarily a clean cut, pristine valley walk from point A to point B. They have to navigate a lot of uh, obstacles, roads, whatever, and then also various uses of that habitat to get there. But at least in the agencies, they have some responsibility for those areas. They are talking about it. So, uh, you know, I read several proposals and potential impacts to the path of the pronghorn comes up. So, I, you know, it's good to have the policy to get the conversation started. And like everything else, they need to follow through. They need to do it. And and I, just, you, you raise a really good issue with Path of the Pronghorn, Mike, because in that case, it's working with private property owners as well and mm -hmm. fixing their fencing so the pronghorn can get through. And where there are solutions like that, I think many of our groups are proactively working to um, be on the forefront of that, you know, not so much, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be with agency help you know, but forging those relationships with private property owners. And um, up in the high divide, you know, we're engaging private property owners on grizzly bear movement as well and making um, grizzly bears more ingratiated in, in the communities because we don't want these private property owners to sell and subdivide. We want them to maintain their ranches and live with the bears. And so, so I think there's also, Kurt, in addition to the agencies, you know, engaging more deeply on this, it's um, it, with each other. Uh, it's also the private property owners as well who could play a huge role, especially in, in the greater Yellowstone region, in advancing these goals of big game species and other species being able to move um, around a bit better and to genetically connect up with in, in the case of the grizzly bears, the Yellowstone grizzly bears with the glacier grizzly grizzly bears. Yeah, sure. And, and the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative has been underway for quite a few years, and, and they're seeing some progress in dealing with those uh, large landowners and whatnot. This is Kurt Rappincheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today about natural resource issues across the park system during the past year, 2023. We're joined by Kristen Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. 
Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. We're going to come back to grizzly bears in, in a little bit, but first I want to talk um, fixed anchors, climbing anchors in wilderness areas, um, an obscure little topic that nobody's talking about, but it's a controversial topic. I mean, the, the climbers, a lot of the climbers want to see the ability to install fixed anchors in wilderness areas, and they say it's a safety issue. Um, and I guess the Park Service is kind of taking it on a case by case basis. Should we even be talking about fixed anchors in wilderness areas? I mean, where do you draw the line on what's appropriate in wilderness and coming to, you know, pounding um, metal um, pitons into into a rock face and, and leaving it there so the, the person who follows you a week or a month or a year down the road will be able to, to tie into it? This is definitely in my time of working on conservation, an issue that has never gone away from the day I started um, in my my older days at the Wilderness Society till now. I I actually do remember um, in my very, very early days of being there, uh, there was a committee to talk about fixed anchors at the time. And if I remember correctly, John Krakauer, the author was on that committee uh, back 25 years ago when I started working on wilderness issues. So this is one of those great unresolved issues. And um, and I believe Congress very recently asked the Forest Service in particular to come up with a uh, pathway forward on it, which is how we got to where we are today, which is a comment period that the Park Service and the Forest Service are holding on fixed anchors and wilderness. And the idea here is that it's a very popular sport in certain national park units like Joshua Tree and Black Canyon of the Gunnison. And folks are trying to figure out what the right way is to say you can have fixed anchors in wilderness, which I believe Director Jarvis did in the Obama administration, but plan for it better and actually uh, do plans for fixed anchors so that you're minimizing their impact in wilderness. And to me, that's a compromise position. That's a sort of acknowledgement that it's a sport that people really enjoy doing, but limiting its impact. So it's not sort of a free for all where people are just putting fixed anchors in, that it's a methodical process where the park service is engaged with the community to do that. So I wish things were less controversial when it came to this issue, but I think there have been some conflicts on the ground. And um, I think it's a good thing for the headquarters office to put a policy out and try to, you know, figure out what the pathway forward is rather than the individual parks figuring it out on their own. But, um, but yeah, it's made its way to the halls of Congress and it's in that bill that Mike referenced earlier, the Explore Act you know, continuing this debate about fixed anchors. And I think what folks are the most upset about is fixed anchors being defined as an installation, which is prohibited in the Wilderness Act. But in the same breath in the policy, after they say that it's an installation, they say that the fixed anchors can still exist as long as there's they're used sparsely and intentionally. And so... Um, in the eye of the so beholder. It's in the eye of the beholder, but, you know, what I have always thought about with fixed anchors is it's the same as having trails in wilderness areas in some ways and trails are maintained in wilderness areas. So it's just a trail that's on the side of a rock instead of on the ground. And so I think we need to look at some of these recreation issues and try to figure out a pathway forward. I think Mike was saying earlier when you're a superintendent, you're trying to just figure out how to bring people together and solve a problem. And, you know, and I think that's the case with uh, rock climbers is trying to figure out a pathway forward here for park managers to be able to move forward. Cause I think there's just been too much controversy on this and we need to settle it once and for all and have a path for the rock climbers to be able to move ahead. So I'm very sympathetic toward them, but I think this policy is good and, um, and we should try to work within it. And I think they're going to make, I was just talking to the Park Service folks um, last week about it. And I think based on some of the feedback that they're getting with the comment period, they're going to continue to adjust this guidance that they're working on right now. So I think 
the more we can all talk with each other about that guidance and its implementation, I think, I think that's a good thing. You know, um, I, I climbed to the top of the, the Grand Teton um, in an earlier day, and actually I was led to the top of the Grand Teton. But as I recall, we didn't use any fixed anchors. And I, I recall that because I was tasked with removing the um, temporary anchors that the, the guide had put in. And I was collecting them and making sure that he got them back because the guide's got to buy their own cams and whatnot. And so I, I have to wonder, you know, should we be climbing in places where you can't use a, a cam or something that you need to pound something into the rock face? Mike, um, if, if, if a fixed anchor is good for a climber in a wilderness area, what about mountain bikers? That's an awful popular sport. I mean... Is it a slippery slope or are they two different apples you know, and oranges? Um, I've thought a lot about it. I worked in Yosemite in the 80s. I was a search and rescue officer. I was a climber back in my younger days. I've climbed all the big walls in Yosemite Valley. It's apples and oranges when you talk about fixed anchors versus mountain bikes. Um, both are questionably legal under provisions of the Wilderness Act. Um, Kristen referenced some kind of committee in the late 90s, early two, into 2000. Forest Service created an interagency negotiated rulemaking committee, Park Service, BLM, climbing organizations, wilderness advocates participated. They had four multi-day meetings. So I don't know how many meeting dates, eight or 10 meeting days total. Um, they could not reach consensus on a final rule for fixed anchor regulation which was their goal. It sounds like from what I've read and heard from people who were there that um, there was some general agreement on some core concepts. One being an individual bolt or individual fixed anchor was considered de minimis. So too small to be for the law to be concerned about in terms of impacts. And so those were generally accepted and, and, and sort of um, allowed under the policy that exists today. What is a little different about the Park Service proposal is currently is they eliminate the de minimis rationale. And, you know, that can be legally challenged one way or the other. Um, I think I do agree there needs to be a national policy so that there's some clarity. I guess the other thing I would say is when you climb Grand Teton, chances are 99.9% .9 that you use fixed anchors to repel down. So anchors left in place that the rope ran through, y'all repelled down, you pulled the rope down behind you. Right. There's virtually no way to have a removable anchor as a repel anchor uh, unless, you know. Unless you there's a tree there. Yeah, right. Um, so in Yosemite, which I'm mo most familiar with, on the big walls, the wilderness boundary, when it was established as something like 400 feet above the valley floor. So you have this wilderness vertical cliff right next to all the busy traffic in Yosemite Valley. It's a little bit ironic and there's probably good reasons for doing that, maybe uh, reasons to question why they did that. So the nature of the rock in Yosemite is there's crack systems, but they don't run continuously to the top. So occasionally there's blank faces to connect this crack system, that crack system. And over the years, bolts, kind of fixed anchor, have been placed to connect the terrain. Uh, in principle, the current policy says fixed anchors should be minimized in wilderness to the extent possible. Re removable anchors should be used. Extensively bolted routes, which are referred to as sport climbing routes, are not appropriate in wilderness but an occasional bolt to connect terrain to make, you know, some long climb possible is okay. And so what the new policies focuses on is the approval process. And it, I can see some good aspects to it and I can see some challenging aspects to it. So uh, I'm glad they're open to comments and I think it can probably be fine-tuned and made better based on the feedback. It's probably good they're addressing it because it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, where everybody comes down on that. Um, before we wrap up this year in review, um, 
wildlife, um, grizzly bears, gray wolves, red wolves, Mexican wolves, wolverines, Canada lynx. I, I think we've seen some successes um, to a certain degree in the past year. Um, by that, um, wolverines getting um, Endangered Species Act protection. I believe the, the Forest Service has uh, agreed to, or the, not the Forest Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, agreed to um, kind of go back to the drawing board with red wolves in the eastern uh, United States around Great Smoky Mountains um, National Park. The North Cascades Grizzly Bear Recovery Plan is moving forward. Canada Lynx, I believe the Fish and Wildlife Service has agreed to take a look to see if they deserve listing. Are we talking positive news here in terms of those species? I hope so. And um, some of these decisions are still being made. And I think the receptivity to doing introductions of species and reintroductions and, um, and then listing them if necessary. I think this is all good stuff, Kurt. And I think there are more opportunities moving forward if there's an appetite to move forward um, to continue to look at better protecting um, some of these species. But um, I think it's, and I think I said this about a couple of issues so far, but you have to take, you know, all of these steps with additional steps in order to protect these species. And so um, I think um, continuing to support um, the protection of the grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that, you know, the second that protections would be removed, um, hunting them, you know, will just be very, very problematic. So continuing to really think about the issue as a whole and getting buy-in and making these ecosystems as whole as possible, I think it's it's fantastic. And we encourage the administration to do more of it. So, um, but I think this is one of the reasons why people love our park so much um, is to watch these species thrive. And so you rattled off a whole great list. I feel like we should make a 12 days of Christmas song out of all the species that are being protected right now. Right. Um, you know, we just saw wolves released in Colorado. I know West, it's West fantastic West. to see. It's so great to see those videos when they come out. And so, you know, I just think this is such a great opportunity and a time frame to watch um, such support for bringing those species back and supporting their, um, you know, whether they can thrive or not. So, we are all for it. I think it's a good news story. And, you know, I really do hope that the agencies are able to complete the work on, on at places like North Cascades where moving forward on that grizzly bear plan uh, would be fantastic if they can get it done in the next couple of months. I, I think it's important progress. Uh, I had the privilege of working at Yellowstone when the gray wolves were reintroduced. Um, I had the Extreme privilege of getting to go pick them up at the airport and deliver them to the park for the release. And it turned to be out to be a little bit of an epic all-nighter. We drove to uh, Great Falls, Montana to pick them up. They were being flown in from Canada. Weather was locked in, so they were delivered to Missoula, which is three, four hours away. So we went to Missoula, and we had to get them to Yellowstone first thing in the morning because the Secretary of Interior was there for the release. And so it was an epic all-nighter for us. And we, you know, rolled down and delivered the wolves and we went to bed and everybody else uh, went to the release of that. Gray wolves reintroduction at Yellowstone has changed the face of the park in a good way. It's restored some balance to the predator-prey relationship with elk. Elk were drastically overgrazing, uh, particularly in, along streams and kind of sensitive habitat on the edge of wetlands. So I, I'm a supporter of reintroductions provided as adequately studied. Um, in some cases, they're considered experimental populations, which allows the state wildlife agency and the federal agencies a little more flexibility to deal with problem individuals. Um, and that was an important part of the reintroduction at Yellowstone, that if wolves went somewhere and started killing cattle, then they could be removed. They were considered a problem. Uh, there's a little bit more flexibility as an experimental population. I think knowing that grizzly bears and wolves are in Yellowstone 
adds incredible value to the experience of visiting the park, even if you don't see one of them. You know they're there. You are attentive to your surroundings when you're hiking in the backcountry. You look for sign, and often you see sign. Um, so to me, it just adds value to the experience as well as to the uh, ec ecological benefits of having more balanced predator-prey relationships in these um, large national parks ecosystems. You know, another species that uh, folks might not um, know, know a lot about when they go to the national parks, but which is uh, uh, an engineer in its own right, are beavers. And, um, you know, the traveler did a, a series of stories on how park managers in some areas were, were using beavers to help restore ecosystems. Um, down at Bandelier, um, hiked up the creek there with uh, one of the, the rangers who, who was showing us, you know, the impacts that the beavers were having and the, the dams that they were building, pooling back the water. Um, Rocky Mountain National Park, they're, they're in use there. Um, Voyagers National Park, I mean, they don't have to restore beavers there. They've got a, a very healthy beaver population. But it, it's it's really interesting that, you know, it's not exactly a charismatic megafauna, but uh, beavers are incredible little critters out there and have a, a major impact on the landscape. I love beavers. <laughs> uh, they are nature's engineers. Um, their social behavior as well as their engineering skills is part of their lifestyle, their ecological ex ex existence. Um, beavers like to live and feed in still water, but they tend to live in the mountains along streams. And so their solutions build a dam, make a little pond out of it so they can have a lodge, which is a protected shelter where they live. And then they can chew down young sapling trees, drag them into the pond so they have winter food supply. And so to me, it's fascinating to watch them I usually consider it a good sign if I see beavers in the park. Healthy ecosystem. Yeah. Well, Kristen, Mike, it's been uh, enjoyable discussing um, the past year in the National Parks, National Park Service, and looking at some of the issues. And uh, uh, moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how some of the decision-making comes down on, on some of the solutions that are needed out there. And, um, you know, as we mentioned last week, um, the agencies going to need some help from Congress. But... Um, there's recognition out there, and hopefully we'll see some positive things in the new year. We cannot end this podcast without saying just how important the work you do is. National Parks Traveler is heavily read by park advocates as well as others, uh, park visitors. Uh, you do incredible work. I'm constantly amazed at your level of productivity. I appreciate your professional journalism that you always seek out differing opinions on controversial issues so you're not just reporting the park advocate side or the park opposition side you're, you're telling the story and so that's an amazing service i wish you good luck going into the next year hope you stay in business because we need you and just to echo what mike said uh, we definitely didn't want to leave this podcast without raving about the journalism that you do kurt you have always been just one of the best at reporting on these issues and the depth that you report on them. And you'll do a story on it and then you'll follow it up with a podcast and you'll get those points of view out there. I love reading the stories on the little, the little stories on parks because sometimes, um, you know, that's the only way that we find out what's going on in different park units is when you find out some niggling little you know, issue that's going on somewhere and you make it come alive to people, you know, in your newsletters and on the website and podcasts. And so we so value you. And I, I can't tell you um, how many NPCA staff people just really enjoy working with you on stories and getting the news out there. And, and decision makers do hear what you're saying and they do read your reporting and other news organizations use your reporting, Kurt, all the time. To, to figure out the depth of, of an issue. So we don't want you to go away. We want you to stick around and, um, and we value you so much. So thank you for continuing to do what you do. And hopefully you feel supported by the parks community. And, um, and we really do wish you the best and hope this is a good end of year for you. 
Well, I certainly appreciate the kind words and um, we'll see um, the readers and the listeners have, have risen to the occasion. Um, it's not a long-term solution, but, but certainly um, I, I think we'll be able to get through June of 24, um, into June of 2024. And that gives us uh, six more months to try and um, figure out a more um, sustainable revenue model. But um, certainly appreciate it. It's been a, a great ride the past 18 years. I really enjoy the, the journalism and the writers I get to work with tell incredible stories. And um, it's been a lot of fun. So we'll see where things take us in 2024. Thank you for all you do. We really appreciate it. I hope you feel appreciated. That's our show for this week, and that's our last show for the year. I hope you find these programs interesting and informative, and we look forward to continuing them in 2024. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.